Hi everyone, CJ here, and welcome to the Dangerous History Podcast. This is episode 68 of the Dangerous History Podcast, and like I mentioned I was going to do last time, this is going to be the first time on this podcast that I'm going to do an episode wherein I will share some listener emails with everyone and also respond to them, respond to their questions or comments with comments of my own. This is something I've been thinking about some point doing for a while, but it just so happens that in the past few weeks or so, just by happy coincidence, I've gotten several good emails from listeners in quick succession that are the types of emails that I think will be great for this sort of a show. Now, before I get into it, I just want to make, I guess, somewhat of a disclaimer. Don't feel bad if you've emailed me a question or comment in the past that I chose not to include here. It's partly just a matter of luck, the ones I pick, and it's partly pure subjectivity on my part as far as what emails I think when I'm picking happen to be ones that will lend themselves well to this context, to this format, to me reading them and then providing some answers and feedback. Also, I will point out, if you have sent me a wonderful email, a, a brilliant question or comment that, um, you know, deserved feedback on my part, and if it was more than, say, a month or two ago, the fact was, at that point, I was not yet getting enough good emails of this sort that I was really collecting them to do this type of show. You know, I, I was getting good, intelligent, thoughtful emails back then, but I was getting them on a more sporadic basis, you know, whereas in recent months, because of the growth of the audience, I've been getting good emails of this sort on a more regular basis. So I finally realized, ah, I need to start saving some of these, you know, and of course, I, I always ask the listener and obtain their permission and everything to use their email on the show and so on. And I'm just going to be identifying them by a first name. So thank you to everyone who's uh, emailed questions or comments to the show, and thank you in particular to those whose emails I'm going to be using here. Anyway, from now on, I will be asking listeners if I can use their emails if it's the type of email question or comment that I think will lend itself well to this context. Again, I admit, kind of subjective on my part, please don't take offense if I don't pick one of your emails in the future and you thought it was one that would be good for this. Typically, I'll say I like an email that, even if it has some elaboration, does have like a clear central question or point to it and one that I can respond to in some fashion. So something that I can either, if it's a question I can answer or it's a comment that I can then also comment on myself. So it can't just be a really simple question you could answer on Google in two seconds, like what year did William the Conqueror invade England? And it also can't just be feedback on the show. It's fine if you want to put in a few feedback comments in the email as well, but it won't get used in this type of uh, episode unless there's more to it than that. I, I just wouldn't use a purely feedback email for this purpose. But of course, I do appreciate and value feedback emails and do try to respond to them, even if it's just to, th to say thanks. But they're, they're just not right for this type of show. So anyway, first one I'm going to share is from a listener named Ben. And this one, I actually responded with a lengthy email of my own, partly because it happened to just be a day where I had some time to think and put together a fairly long response and send it, partly because it's a topic that 
I'm really interested in and plan on doing more on in the future. And partly also because it wasn't until after I emailed Ben my initial response, I think, that I, I had the light bulb go on over my head saying, hey, you should use this for a, an email, you know, listener email episode. Um, so it was after I sent him a lengthy response that I said, oh, can I use this on a show? Um, in the future, probably, and what I think I did with all the other emails I'm sharing here, uh, what I'll probably do is not give the listener too much of an answer to their actual question or comment, but instead to say, hey, can I use that in a show? And I'll answer it there. And assuming the listener is cool with that, that's what I'll do. So anyway, in this first email, I'll actually read you Ben's uh, initial email and then read you my response back. And I may or may not elaborate much on it. I think my response is pretty comprehensive. So Ben writes, Prof. CJ, first off, congratulations on hitting the one-year mark. I just listened to the anniversary podcast and the, revolu- and the reflections on the Revolutionary War episodes yesterday. Wanted to get your take on something. In episode 63, you had mentioned that there's a chapter in Tolkien's Return of the King with some very libertarian-slash-anarchistic ideas, and for obvious reasons that were, that were completely omitted from the film— I generally think of Hollywood as more or less one organism that is very pro-establishment, and in the last few years, even more so. So I was floored while watching The Hunger Games at the downright insurrectionist message that is being put forth in a way that is almost unchanged from that of the book. I don't know if you've read those books or seen those movies, but there are some very interesting similarities between our government and the futuristic government in the series. There are parallels with class warfare, corruption, control, and propaganda. And the message from the series as a whole is that of true revolution, not just a change in leadership. That's not the only movie either. I was watching Box Trolls a couple of weeks ago with my kids, and although that movie is nowhere near as mainstream as The Hunger Games, there was a very strong message that classes of people that normally do not associate and, quote, weaker people could unite to overthrow a tyrannical system. There are other examples, too, but none as strong as these two. My question is, how do you think these films were able to be produced with the climate the way it is in this country? Are there rebel producers in Hollywood, or are the films so fictional that no one important thinks they will have an effect on our society? Or am I just a nut job seeing things that other people are not? Anyway, your series on the American Revolution got me thinking about this. I know it's not really a history subject, but I would value your opinion very much could possibly be an idea for a show topic if you were to explore the effect of theatrical productions on society stating back to the Shakespearean era. Love your show. Keep up the great work, Ben. Thanks very much for the email, Ben. And this is my email response back to him, which I'll just go ahead and read. And I quote myself. Hi, Ben. No, I don't think you're a nut who's reading too much into things. I think you're just paying attention and thinking. Although, on the other hand, that does make you a weirdo in our current society as far as the mainstream is concerned. But in that case, I'm a proud weirdo too, I guess. The arts often have a greater impact on society's attitudes and perceptions than almost anything else. And they also function as a barometer of what's really going on in people's heads, not just on a conscious level, but on a subconscious one as well in the realm of things like archetypes. For example, I don't think the timing of the current zombie craze is at all coincidental, but is the result of writers tapping into a lot of their own and society's misgivings about the flaws of things like conformity, democracy, and consumerism. I think this is a very interesting and important subject, and one I'm definitely planning on talking more about on the show at some point. 
There are some movies as well as fictional books that I definitely want to talk about getting into sort of review plus deeper analysis and commentary. I've only done that a couple of times so far, as you probably know if you've listened to a lot of my past episodes, but I think it's worth revisiting. I agree with you completely that Hollywood is mostly, whether by deliberate intention or just by cultural osmosis because they're a branch of the power elite, with very rare exceptions, a mouthpiece for the establishment. It seems like the one genre where you frequently have anti-establishment and sometimes even blatantly libertarian or even anarchistic themes is in science fi- is in the science fiction realm. Let me correct my own email typo. And to a lesser extent in fantasy as well. I think the two examples you bring up, Hunger Games and Box Trolls, both of which I've seen, are good illustrations of this. I've not read the Hunger Games books, but I actually had a student recommend them to me as being even a bit more subversive than the movies, which wouldn't surprise me. Even some other very recent mainstream blockbusters, such as Captain America the Winter Soldier and Star Trek Into Darkness, have some surprisingly subversive themes going on, and in the less mainstream sci-fi movies it can be even more radical than that. To answer your specific questions, I think the explanation for these subversive sci-fi movies, and you seem to be thinking along these lines as well, is basically like this. Writers are, in general, I think, more likely to be subversive than the rest of the Hollywood types. In other words, I think most actors, directors, producers, etc. are much more establishment conformist than a lot of the writers, especially the writers who do a lot of sci-fi fantasy and even some of the more cerebral types of horror. This is even more true of writers who are primarily short story and or novelists rather than primarily screenwriters. These writers can sometimes get a surprisingly subversive movie made, sometimes even by a major production company, so long as the subversive themes of the story are somewhat camouflaged by the trappings of sci-fi fantasy or horror. I think there are perhaps some rebel producers as well, but the producers are more likely to be motivated by simple profit more than anything. And so even if they're not rebellious themselves they might be willing to make a rebellious movie if they think it, one, will make a lot of money, and two, that its subversive themes are somewhat obscured by special effects, action, romance, etc. Besides, it's reasonable to assume that a subversive movie that's closer to real life, or perhaps even based on a true story, would not be a blockbuster, no matter how well done of a movie it is. As an example of this, I'd point to something like Kill the Messenger, the movie I reviewed a while back about Gary Webb. That was a very well-made movie with a lot of really good actors, and it got mostly positive reviews. But according to my Googling, it cost $5 million to produce and only made $2.5 million. Among other things, it was not advertised, and it was only in a few theaters. I only heard about it word of mouth and had to drive very far to see it. Star Trek Into Darkness, plot spoiler if you haven't seen it yet, but it's on Netflix streaming, so go go watch it. It's a good movie. I don't care what uh, old school Trekkie purists say. It's a good movie. Star Trek Into Darkness, on the other hand, was a huge success and yet had as one of its major plot points the idea of false flag attacks, a very radical notion that is always depicted as tinfoil hat stuff by the mainstream. But they were able to do it and have huge mainstream success with it because it was done in a sci-fi context. 
It's hard to imagine a non-documentary film depicting the truth of the Gulf of Tonkin incident being made by any major company, and it's even harder to imagine such a movie achieving mainstream commercial success if by some miracle it was made. Whoever made it would probably face attack even if it ended up being successful, too. Just look at all the mud thrown at Oliver Stone for JFK. By the way, I'm not endorsing that film as 100% right on everything, but I applaud it for at least challenging the official narrative and getting a lot of people thinking at the time. Anyway, hope you don't mind my long-winded answer, but I can and probably will jabber a lot about this stuff on the podcast from time to time. Thanks for a great question, CJ. And uh, just to my my email response, I think I said most of what I wanted to say there, but I am planning on, like everything else at some nebulous point in the future, doing some more shows where I talk about movies or television shows or books or things. And I'm not planning on, on doing just or even primarily historical things because – so much of the historical movies and TV in particular, and even some of the books that come out and achieve wide mainstream exposure are just so bad. Like I can't bring myself to watch them, even if they're very slickly produced and have good actors. Most of the time with, with some notable exceptions here and there to be sure, most of the time from a historical standpoint, they're just so far from the truth. So I actually, this might surprise you, I actually don't watch very many historical television shows or movies at all. Doesn't mean that I don't on occasion, especially if there's something that, you know, I check out an episode or two and it's actually pretty solid. But I think there's a lot in those genres I mentioned of sci-fi, fantasy, and some of the more intellectual types of horror, not just like the, you know, crazy slasher with no point type stuff, that there's a lot of deeper themes and ideas going on there that tie in many ways into the themes of this show. And just as a little bit of a teaser for a possible future episode sometime in the next, I don't know, month or two, one of the things I'm thinking about doing is an episode where I look at and review and kind of compare and contrast three classic sci-fi dystopias two of which are pretty well-known, and the third of which is not as well-known, but actually I think in some ways is the best of all three. And those are, of course, 1984 by George Orwell, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, and This Perfect Day by Ira Levin. These are all books I've read uh, in years past, and I'm considering rereading them maybe um, over the summer to refresh my memory on the details and then doing some sort of an episode where I kind of give a brief synopsis review and then more and more uh, analysis and compare and contrast between those three dystopian sci-fi novels of kind of the mid-20th century. But uh, to all of you listening, let me know what you think. If you'd like to hear more episodes where I review or, or discuss movies and books and things like that and, and analyze the the deeper meanings and philosophies going on, let me know if that's something you'd like to hear and I can, you know, try to do more of it in the future. The only two I can think of that I've done so far was, of course, my review of the movie Kill the Messenger about Gary Webb and my review of the absolutely horrific and not intentionally so novel Philip Drew Administrator by the late Colonel Edward Mandel House. But uh, thanks again, Ben, for the email. On to the next one. This next email comes to us from Justin, and Justin writes, 
Hi, Prof. CJ. This one is kind of deep, so if you don't have time to answer it, feel no sense of obligation to respond in any time frame whatsoever. I was binge listening to your podcast, and I forget which specific episode it was, but you mentioned how minarchism doesn't go far enough because even that tiny foot in the door becomes self-propagating. I totally agree, and yet I think if the Native Americans had the ability to have a large state response to the threat of the white man, they'd still have their country. If the U.S. had become anarchist in 1935, we'd be enslaved or killed by the Nazis by now. So, how does a large-scale threat get responded to properly, but still maintain a small, free, independent government? Also, in the American Revolution series, you mentioned a well-armed populace is difficult to control. True, but how has that changed in your mind, if at all, now that we live in a world of ICBMs, MRAP tanks for police forces, predator drones, and nuclear warheads? Again, a lot here, so feel no obligation to respond. If it's too much of a time burden, just working out some things mentally on my end. So I uh, responded to Justin, of course, by asking his permission to use this email on this show, and he kindly agreed to that so I can give my thoughts on this question or the, this series of questions verbally. First, just to be clear, um, I am a guy who believes that the ultimate goal for humanity for its own survival and salvation should be a stateless society. So just to clarify a little bit, I'm not interested in maintaining a small free independent government as uh, Justin mentioned there. I'm also a gradualist and I understand this is a project that can't possibly be done in a relatively small amount of time and is most likely, as many people say, a multi-generational sort of a thing. And I, I focus primarily on what I think is the most important part of this process, which is kind of the, the hearts and minds effort. I think if we create more educated people who truly understand, uh, who truly understand and value freedom then eventually the state will, it might lash out a bit in its dying moments, but eventually the state will lose its power because it's people believing in the concept and the righteousness of the state that gives the state its power. You start to chisel away at that belief and that faith and the state withers away, ultimately, I believe. I'm I'm one of those people who takes the point of view that ultimately, at the end of the day, while there always is and must be force involved, a state depends more than anything else on, on opinion, on most people, even if they're not crazy about it, even if they're a little bit grumpy about some of the things it does, believing at the end of the day that it is right and just and inevitable and all these sorts of things. Now, the questions that Justin raises are very common ones for people who are somewhat leaning anarchist in a way, but not quite able to make the last few steps, at least as of yet. And I appreciate that Justin is asking this question from, from what I can tell from our email exchanges, not a, not in the way that someone who's completely hostile to the idea of statelessness would, not in any kind of a snarky way, as far as I can tell, he's asking this question uh, in, in curiosity and in good faith and so on. And so, you know, I appreciate that. It's nice to get asked questions about these sorts of beliefs that are that way, that are not just, you know, blatantly hostile and so on. So let me go through and give some thoughts on some of the points that Justin raised. Uh, first off, on the vulnerability of the American Indians, 
uh, back in history and also other non-state peoples around the world over the last, say, couple centuries who have been either wiped out or absorbed and domesticated by European-style modern states. I would say that it's true that in a lot of ways, many of the American Indian tribes really didn't have what you would consider a state. And this is true of highland tribal peoples throughout the world and true of tribal and nomadic peoples who live in remote places around the world up until fairly recently in human history. That you have peoples with perhaps some sort of tribal quasi-governmental structure for settling basic disputes and things like this, but they didn't really have anything resembling a state. And it's true that when a fully modern, centralized state wants to make it a priority, it can usually, even though it may take several generations, it can usually take care of these people, uh, typically by using quite brutal methods, you know, just destroying their sources of food, destroying their livelihood, forcing their youngsters into state-run schools that indoctrinate them away from whatever culture they are originally part of. This sort of thing was done to American Indians and is done to people outside the scope of the state in many parts of the world. I'm currently reading about this process in Southeast Asia in a book that I highly recommend, very interesting book called The Art of Not Being Governed by a Yale, I can't remember, I think he's an anthropologist by credentials, um, but he, he's, a, he's a Yale guy named James C. Scott. And he's writing about this in Southeast Asia, how a lot of the highland tribal peoples in Southeast Asia resisted until really quite recently being under state control. And there's lots of parallels to things that happen in the Americas with the indigenous peoples and so on. Now, one distinction I would make between those sorts of non-state peoples and a potential future, you know, anarcho-capitalist zone, for lack of a better term, is that in a future stateless society wherein you have people just decided they wanted freedom and they're going to live uh, freely and, and have non-state protection for private property and so on, I would also say there's not that in the case of the indigenous peoples of America or the highland tribal peoples in Southeast Asia or any of these other non-state peoples who have been conquered in the last few centuries by states. So, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that a future, if such a thing came about, a future anarcho-capitalist or whatever you want to call it, stateless society, is a society that would have had to have come about because of a mental revolution in the minds of much of the population in a particular geographical area. So that would mean that if such a such a place ever came into existence, such a realm, it would mean that the people there must have, by definition, gone through the process of appreciating things like the free market, private property, and the non-aggression principle, and so on. So what does that mean for the ability of such a place to potentially defend itself against external threat? Well, you would have a place that would likely end up much wealthier per capita and much more high tech than any society in the world around them that was still ruled by a state. States are horrific on wealth uh, production 
and uh, innovation and so on. They, they have a terrible effect. Even relatively limited states, by comparison, still have a, a hobbling effect on innovation and so on. I've seen studies by uh, serious economists where they've crunched the numbers and everything and said that if regulation in the United States of business and industry had stayed where it was, I, I think it was in the, in the early 60s, if it had just stayed where it was in the early 60s and not exponentially grown ever since, that today the United States would be significantly wealthier per capita, significantly wealthier per capita. And so if you look around the world today, you see that the states that have the – and by states, I mean you know countries and, and the governments that rule them – that have – the lower regulations and less taxes and so on tend to be overwhelmingly uh, much wealthier and uh, higher tech. You know, there are a few exceptions here and there, but, you know, in general, there's an extremely strong correlation. So it would seem to be logical that if having less state involvement and meddling in the economy produces more wealth and innovation, that having even less than that would would result in even more wealth and innovation. In other words, Ancapistan would be we, – we would reasonably expect that Ancapistan would be a place that is actually wealthier and higher tech than the other states that might still exist in the world around it. Now, this is very different from the relationship in terms of technology between, say, the United States in the 19th century and the Indian tribes, where the United States has much more technology. And that's because even though it did have a state, it also had a people in a society that had some degree of appreciation of free market, private property, and so on, and so was able to have a lot of innovation. And of course, the United States, despite having a government there to somewhat hobble the economy, also had the legacies of things like the scientific revolution, the Enlightenment, and so on, which up until relatively recently were only the seeds of those revolutions in thinking and approaches to knowledge and so on were really only in Western countries until relatively recently in human history. So, you know, Indian tribes, for example, didn't have modern science to use uh, to defend themselves in addition to making themselves more, you know, materially, technologically advanced. And so the fact that the United States had the scientific method, the free market and so on, gave it the ability to be much higher tech than the Indians, even though the Indians didn't have nearly as much of like a state and taxation and regulation to hobble them. Same thing if you look at Asia and other places where states have conquered tribal peoples and so on, you see that the states typically have much greater per capita wealth and technology. And there are different reasons why this could be. Sometimes it's just an accident of geography and so on. But they're able to muster and concentrate wealth and technology against peoples who did not have equivalent wealth and technology, and those tribal peoples didn't have the institutions and, and the intellectual heritage and the cultural experience that would cause them to have a real you know, free market, private property sort of economy. So anyway, I hope that makes sense. That's why, to me, it seems logical that a future anarchist society based on intellectual revolution would be very, very wealthy and innovative relative to the societies around it still living under states, in contrast to older tribal societies where they don't have 
that degree of wealth and innovation that would allow them to maybe defend themselves better. I mean, imagine if the Indians were actually in America were uh, in the 1800s wealthier and higher tech than the white Americans. If they had better guns and better gun factories and better weapons technologies across the board and better medical technologies and so on, right? If that had been the case, they probably could have defended themselves pretty well. I mean, as it was, some of the uh, individual Indian tribes put up a pretty damn good fight in a lot of cases. Remember, too, that diseases killed far more Indians than did the white man's firepower. So theoretically, superior science on the part of the Indians might have saved vastly more lives via better medical treatment of the white man's diseases than would, you know, just superior weaponry have saved Indian lives in battle. Now, as to the the point about the Nazis in particular or some other potential large state threat to a potential stateless society or zone uh, in the future, first off, on the specifics of the Nazis, the way I would answer that is I would say that the rise of the Nazis in Germany in the first place was caused by Woodrow Wilson's decision to have the United States government intervene in the First World War. Had that not happened, the Allies couldn't have won an overwhelming victory against the Germans. Germany was winning the war in the East against the Russians, in part by uh, kicking off the Bolshevik Revolution there, you know, smuggling in Lenin and all that. And in the West, fighting against Britain and France, the Germans probably would have ended up with a draw or maybe a slight, slight victory for themselves. And so either way, had the U.S. government not gotten into the First World War, there wouldn't have been this overwhelmingly unfair punitive peace treaty against Germany. And had Germany not been treated that way with the Treaty of Versailles as it ended up being, it is very tough to believe that the Nazis would have had a snowball's chance in hell of coming to power in the German political system after the First World War. It's very, very important. The way the Treaty of Versailles treated Germany unfairly and screwed it over financially and, and all these things took territory from it and tried to prevent it from having any kind of a decent military, all these things were seen as massive slaps to the face and humiliations to the German people. And that's why German politics in the post-World War I years were so much characterized by many political parties, not just the Nazis, pushing the message of Germany was treated unfairly in the Treaty of Versailles, and we need to do what it takes to make it right. Now, it just so happened that the Nazis were one of the groups that were the best at really hitting that message in a passionate sort of a way that resonated with a lot of pissed off Germans who were in particular angry about the Treaty of Versailles and the way World War I had ended. So first off, I would argue that the Nazis would not nearly as likely have been would not have been nearly as likely to come to power in Germany had it not been for American intervention in the first place. And that brings up a larger point, which is how often are the enemies of the U.S. government brought into existence and turned into enemies by the actions of the U.S. government in the first place? And again, I would refer you to the concepts of blowback. And uh, the books by Chalmers Johnson, beginning with Blowback, and then there were two or three others in the same series on this concept. You know, how often are America's enemies brought into existence by the actions of the American government to begin with? 
And would there be as many enemies if the United States government wasn't constantly going around the world, blowing stuff up and killing people, trying to be the world policeman? Would there be as many hostile groups and, and countries and so on in the, to America if that were not the case, right? I mean, in other words, were there as many countries that didn't like America, say, in 1805, when by comparison, America was following a much more, what, what today would be derided as an isolationist foreign policy than it does in modern times, right? Or 1885, when America, again, was still largely, quote-unquote, isolationist. There were much fewer people and groups and countries around the world that were pissed at America during those years. I would also point out that I'm not so sure that Nazi Germany was ever remotely close to being a serious threat to American territory. And to support that, I would point out that the Nazis were not successfully able to launch an amphibious assault across the English Channel on Great Britain during the entirety of World War II, even during the years when Germany was the master of most of Western Europe, they were never able to successfully launch a cross-channel invasion. They got a few of the Channel Islands, I think, for a while, but that was as good as they could do. And so if they were never quite able to cross the English Channel and invade the UK, how they would have crossed the entire Atlantic Ocean and ended up in America with sufficient men and supplies. I mean, the logistics are, are horrific. They were having a hard enough time fighting the Brits. And then, you know, not long after that, they invaded Russia. So I would just say that I personally don't believe that the Nazi regime was ever a serious threat to America. Now, were they bad guys? Yeah, is there a case to be made of maybe doing something against them on, on purely humanitarian grounds, uh, perhaps, but that's a, that's a different question than they were truly a, an existential threat to the United States. They were not able to successfully take the UK. Um, they also proved unable to deal with Russia, which was always their number one priority, was to uh, take land from Russia. And overwhelmingly, the historians who are experts on the European aspects of World War II will tell you that Russia did the vast lion's share of defeating the German war machine in that war, and that the United States and Britain played a, certainly a helpful supporting role for that, and uh, the U.S. did send Russia a lot of gear and lend lease. Of course, this is helping out the regime of Joseph Stalin in many ways, as bad as Hitler's regime in terms of murdering millions of people. So the, the Nazis as a specific example, I think there, there are flaws there. But I understand the larger point, though, of if you had a powerful industrialized country that wanted to attack your Ancapistan, how how could it be defended? How would it be defended? Would it be defended successfully at all? Well, this is all, of course, hypothetical. We're talking about a society that doesn't exist yet. So this is, of course, just speculation. I just base it on, you know, reason as I see it and uh, evidence and examples from history trying to apply them here the best I can. So take it for what it's worth. There's obviously no way to decisively prove these things. But again, I, I just note that countries that mind their own business a lot more in foreign affairs and are much more neutral isolationist tend to be very rarely involved in wars. It really does take two to tango in most cases. It really does take two countries 
getting hostile to each other. It's it does happen, but it's extremely rare for one government to invade another country uh, that has done nothing to provoke it. That's actually much rarer than your leaders would want you to think. Even in the case of World War II, the British and French in many ways were gunning for that war as well. They just weren't as prepared for it as the Germans, and so the Germans ended up looking a lot better at it in the beginning. But um, on the on this topic of the British and French being at least partly partly responsible in addition to just Germany for World War II happening, I'd refer uh, the listeners to a book called Human Smoke by Nicholson Baker, the very, very interesting book that will blow your mind on a lot of your assumptions about World War II if you've only ever been exposed to the standard narrative. But in general, countries that mind their own business and don't go around causing troubles and picking fights actually very rarely get attacked or threatened. Does happen, but very rare. And so it would be logical then to say, well, if governments who don't poke their nose into other governments' business much, typically don't get into wars or get into wars far less frequently, then it would stand to reason that a country that has no government at all would also be less likely to get involved in wars than countries who have governments that are constantly doing stuff in other parts of the world. Now, in a case where there is just a state threat that for whatever reason wants in on Ancapistan, if it's coveting land or has some crazy delusion about enslaving people or is coveting some other natural resource or, or whatever. And it is just dead set on trying to attack and take over this anarchistic society. How might it be defended? Well, I would say that fourth generation warfare or, or modern people's war, the strengths of that concept show that states are often very much at a disadvantage when they try and fight a people who are using the basic concepts of fourth generation warfare. And anyone interested more in this concept, check out my the show notes for my last episode. I had some links in there to some things about fourth generation warfare, what's sometimes called asymmetric warfare, right? Modern insurgent warfare. Defenders always have a huge advantage. They have for at least the last... 150 to 200 years, if not further back, pretty much since you get decent rifles, defense has the advantage against offense. It takes a lot more men to um, successfully attack than it does to defend. And it also takes a hell of a lot more men to occupy and police a place against a popular insurgency. In fact, the U.S. government's exploits in many parts of the world in recent decades show this pretty decisively. Does anyone here really think that the U.S. won the war in Iraq? Well, it made short work of Saddam's state and Saddam's conventional military. But did the U.S. government really subdue the Iraqi people? What about Afghanistan? Afghanistan has less of a gross domestic product than many U.S. states, it is, you know, almost medieval in, in a lot of its uh, technology and standard of living. And these Afghanis are often fighting with antique guns and homemade explosives and so on. But did the United States or the Soviet Union or anyone else who's invaded Afghanistan, can, can any of them really convincingly claim victory over the Afghani people? Vietnam is another example. Not Don't have to go too far back in U.S. history where 
the Vietnamese fighting in many ways, kind of a fourth generation war, were able to kick the U.S. military out of their country, despite the fact that the U.S. government dropped more uh, ordinance on Vietnam than it dropped on Germany and Japan combined in World War II by far. So it is sort of sling in the stone, uh, David and Goliath type of a thing where fourth generation warfare looks weak when you look at money and firepower and so on. But in fact, it has many hidden strengths. And likewise, just like the mythical Goliath, modern states and big modern conventional militaries with all their hardware and things are actually quite vulnerable in a lot of ways, as the U.S. has found out. And if it's difficult to subdue the Afghan people or the Iraqi people or what have you, if it's difficult to to occupy and successfully subdue those people, how much more difficult would it be to try and occupy and subdue a people who were committed to the beliefs of individual freedom and living free from state control? How, how hard would those people be willing to fight? How motivated would they be? People who had chosen to live in true freedom and now here come foreign invaders to try and throw the yoke on them again. How hard would they fight? I think they would fight very hard. I think they would fight very tenaciously. I think you might end up with a porcupine situation where either a lot of states would look at them and say, mm, not worth the trouble. Every single person would end up you know, picking up a rifle from their closet and fighting us. Or they might invade. They might initially appear to be doing well and conquering territory and so on. And then it comes time to actually occupy and hold this territory and run it and exploit it and exploit its resources and so on. And then how quick does it turn into nasty partisan guerrilla resistance? And these are the types of wars that conventional militaries have a terrible time fighting. And for a science fictional take on how such a society might defend itself through this just, you know, willingness to ruthlessly fight to protect the freedom they have, I would say check out a science fiction novel by the author F. Paul Wilson entitled An Enemy of the State. And in particular, there's a group of people in there, and I forget what their, you know, what their society is called, but they have a philosophy. It's called Kaifo. Keep your fucking hands off. K-Y-F-H-O. And these people, nobody messes with them because they are known to be so tenaciously willing to defend the freedom that they have. And they're sort of this anarchistic people. What potentially could defend an anarchist society um, aside from just, you know, spontaneous people's war? By the way, there's the famous quote. It may or may not be true, but it's supposedly attributed, I think, to Admiral Yamamoto after Pearl Harbor, where he said something like, well, we'd never actually invade the mainland United States because there'd be a rifleman hiding behind every tree or something like that. And I'm not even sure if the quote is true. A lot of these quotes you hear around the Internet are false anyway. But it is an interesting point that, you know, Japan, even with their success on Pearl Harbor, never really seriously considered invading the mainland U.S. anytime in the near future. Imagine trying to invade and occupy the United States. It would be frickin' difficult. Got a population that is one of the best armed in the world per capita. And yeah, are they all badass, you know, fighters or whatever? No, plenty of them are tactical mall ninjas in their own fantasies. But nonetheless, it doesn't take a very big percentage of a population willing to engage in partisan warfare to make a place un- occupiable, even if you can initially conquer some territory. 
But in general, I think a basic deterrent could be created by a combination of some sort of militia type unit, of course, voluntary, not funded by conscription and taxation, but voluntary. And again, a society that had deliberately chosen true freedom could probably be expected to be willing to produce enough of a percentage of its population who could and would turn out to fight that it could field a decent militia force. It would be voluntary. It would have very high morale. It could potentially have very good uh, training. All of this can be done without coercion. All of it has been done in various places in history without coercion of a state. And then that could be supplemented as well by basically mercenaries, by, by private security agencies. I'd also say that a stateless society would be more likely to develop technologies that are truly defensive. I think a lot of the things that a state develops supposedly for defense are really more about offense. And as a result, they neglect defense, true defense, and it's not as strong as it could be, whereas a stateless society would not be looking to conquer other places. It would really actually truly just be interested in defending itself, and so the technologies of genuine defense would be much more developed. People have pointed out that a lot of the strategies and technologies and tactics that a stateless society might develop would be more effective in just deterring other countries. For example, it doesn't take a whole lot of money and resources to send, let's say, potentially first-rate assassins to go take out any foreign leader who started to steer his government towards attacking an anarchistic society. And it's a lot easier to infiltrate a one or a handful of assassins to take out some foreign leader than it is to launch an army into a country. I don't think nuclear weapons would be likely to be used against a stateless society simply because the main motivation for attacking a stateless society would be to take its land and resources. And if you nuke the crap out of it, of course, you ruin all of that. Um, nukes maybe could be used as blackmail to try and get them to just submit or what have you. But again, a stateless society could hire or, or create or whatever, some sort of an assassin squad to just go in and, and assassinate the leader of a country that is trying to blackmail a stateless society with nukes. You know, this is all speculative. These are all just potential ways to approach it. The answer at the end of the day that I have is I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure. These are just, you know, some of my thoughts. And a lot of this is not original to me. It's stuff that I've read in other places and that I've found interesting to um, consider. And also keep in mind that a society that doesn't have a central government is a lot harder to subdue because you can't just take out like one city or one group of people and then say, all right, they've surrendered. We've accepted their surrender and that's it. The more decentralized a society is, the harder it actually is to invade and subdue all things, all other things being equal technology and so on. And that was actually one of the biggest strengths in the American Revolution, if you'll recall, was how decentralized the governments and military units and so on were. The British could take major cities, they could defeat entire American armies, and it just meant that down the road there was still more resistance. Well, think about how it would be if you were invading Ancapistan, right? You might march in and, and kick some butt in one town and take it over or whatever, but that doesn't mean the people down the road have thrown in the towel. There's no government that's going to come out and wave the white flag and submit to you. You would literally have to conquer it home by home, block by block, an entire you know country 
Frederick Haldimand, who was a Swiss-born soldier who served in the British Army in both the Seven Years' War and the Revolutionary War, understood the hidden strengths of very decentralized militia forces and so on, even though they might not look impressive to most professionals. But early in the American Revolutionary War, Haldimand said, quote, the Americans would be less dangerous if they had a regular army. Well, eventually George Washington gave them one and I guess made them a little less dangerous. As for the question about the overwhelming firepower and armor that states now have, you know, missiles, tanks, drones, etc., again, these are all things that are capable of inflicting a lot of death and destruction. But asymmetric and unconventional warfare shows that these are not things that are any more likely to produce submission on the part of a people that is committed to resistance, as wars in Vietnam, Afghanistan, and so on have shown. And in fact, the more states resort to these sorts of firepower solutions, the more, on the one hand, they strengthen popular support for the resistance movement, and the more, on the other, they actually end up vulnerable in a lot of ways. And again, remember, a post-industrial free society would probably be wealthier and higher tech than most of its neighbors, if not all of its neighbors, and so it would be a very innovative society, might be able to come up with ways, you know, for example, to electronically nullify the threat from drones and things like that. There's a lot of potential ways these things can be dealt with. It might even produce, just to throw out a possibility, hackers who were so good that they could completely mess up the enemy's communications and control technologies to the point where they could just stop them in their tracks. Some closing thoughts on this question and this concept overall, I'd point out that states, remember, must tax and conscript their own people in order to fight other states. States really, when they fight, they don't fight primarily, if at all, to protect individual citizens' lives or property. If that's what they were fighting for, they wouldn't be taxing, conscripting, and otherwise grabbing resources from their own population. States fight in order to grab more resources or more land, or they fight for prestige, or they fight for some other thing. They fight for things that may be threats to their state. They don't necessarily fight for things that are threats to the lives and properties and prosperity of their own people. In cases where they are fighting for those things, it's largely coincidental that those things for the moment may have coincided with what's best for the state. In the show notes for this episode at profcj.org, I will put Amazon links to a lot of the books I just mentioned, also to another great book that's very thought-provoking and gets into this sort of questions in a lot more detail than I did here. It's entitled The Myth of National Defense. It's edited by Hans Hermann Hoppe, and I think it's really good on a lot of these questions. It has a lot of other possibilities besides just what I've mentioned here. Also, I think it's available for free from the Mises Institute on PDF, I think. Um, I think it also might be available as an MP3 audio book as well, if not from Amazon, then likely from the Mises Institute. I know they've put a lot of the books they publish on audio, you know, available as, as MP3s. I'll also link in the show notes to the essay War, Peace, and the State by Murray Rothbard, which is also a chapter in that book, Myth of National Defense, and to a great lecture by Robert Higgs, and an article by him that he mentions in that lecture. And let me just read, I think it's the closing paragraph in this lecture that kind of turns the tables. Robert Higgs. Anarchists did not try to carry out genocide against the Armenians in Turkey. They did not deliberately starve millions of Ukrainians. 
They did not create a system of death camps to kill Jews, gypsies, and Slavs in Europe. They did not firebomb scores of large German and Japanese cities and drop nuclear bombs on two of them. They did not carry out a great leap forward that killed scores of millions of Chinese. They did not attempt to kill everybody with any appreciable education in Cambodia. They did not launch one aggressive war after another. They did not implement trade sanctions that killed perhaps 500,000 Iraqi children. In debates between anarchists and statists, the burden of proof clearly should rest on those who place their trust in the state. Anarchy's mayhem is wholly conjectural. The state's mayhem is undeniably factually horrendous. End quote. By the way, the title of that lecture that that quote comes from is something along the lines of the state is too dangerous to continue to exist. And that's kind of my thinking on the subject. Is it a guarantee that everything will work out uh, great in a stateless society? No. But the alternative is to always have these leviathans just lying there, hopefully dormant for the time being as far as mass murder of their own people goes. But you never can quite tell. And an interesting book on this topic is Death by Government that goes through the democides, the mass murders by governments of their own people in the 20th century. And it totals actually many more lives than were killed in wars in the 20th century. I, I hope my remarks have given Justin and everybody else some stuff to think about. I don't claim that they're 100% definitive or the final word on any of these sorts of things, but I hope that they've given everybody some food for thought. I realize what I've said here, probably unlikely by itself to cause anyone to take the final mental plunge into anarchism, but I hope it's given everybody some stuff to think about, in my experience anyway the journey to anarchism was a very gradual process. There was no suddenly flipping a switch type of a thing. It was sort of like just moving a little closer, a little closer, a little closer, a little closer until finally, almost without realizing it at first, I was like, holy crap, I don't believe in the state at all anymore. So thanks for the question, Justin. Our next one comes from Ray, who is a fairly longtime listener for the show, you know, long time as far as this show being only about a year old. And Ray's a guy who's always sending me interesting stuff via Twitter and via email as well. And he sent me this question in not too long ago, and I thought it was perfect for a show like this. So here's Ray's question. Ray writes via email, and I quote, It seemed like the way history was taught through my senior year was that topics covered always corresponded with the holidays. We always seemed to be talking about Cortez, Moctezuma, and the Aztecs around Columbus Day. Then around Thanksgiving, we were talking about Miles Standish and the Mayflower. Then we were on Lincoln and the, quote, Civil War about mid-January. There might have been a few additional tidbits, but it was basically the same crap every year. It wasn't until I got into Professor George Forgey's American history to the beginning of the Civil War that I found out that Lincoln wasn't the immutable hero I had been led to believe. If you were going to write a curriculum for public education, and we'll assume that you wouldn't be fired, shot, or hung, or hung in effigy for it, how would you change it so that we weren't all brainwashed, low-information drones at the end? Good question, Ray. And um, I didn't experience the whole historical topics corresponding with holidays very often, I don't think, but it sounds like it was pretty much standard operating procedure for you as well. I think I can remember it happening every now and again, but normally we just, in the K-12 through history classes that I took, we just kind of, you know, started and went along as the semester went along, and, and we weren't even as connected to holidays as what you're describing. But I get your overall point that the way history is typically taught in 
K through 12 education is in such a fashion that most of the time nobody gets very much out of it. And this is why I so frequently get when someone asks me what I do for a living and I tell them that I teach history, I very often will get them responding with, oh, I hated history as a subject or man, did my history teacher suck? And of course, that's like the most awkward conversation hitting the brakes thing you can say when you're talking to somebody who just said, yeah, I teach history for a living because what the hell am I supposed to say to that? Am I supposed to just kind of stop and be like, on behalf of the entire profession of which I am the spokesman in this particular instance, may I apologize for my colleague's lack of awesomeness and pledge henceforth that at no cost to you, I will provide you with a better history education should you so desire it. I mean, what the hell am I supposed to say to that? You know, imagine you're a doctor and you tell someone you're a doctor because they ask what you do for a living. And then their response is, man, doctors all suck. Uh, every doctor I have doesn't do a good job. W- what are you supposed to say to that? Anyway, um, but typically I get the sense in those conversations, if they continue in any way past that, I get the sense that most people didn't get very much at all out of the history education they were inculcated with in typical education, not just in public education, but really most private schools, unless they're something different, unless they're, I don't know, Montessori or something radically different from the typical uh, style of education. Even most private schools are just, you know, maybe a little bit better run, maybe a little bit better managed, but not a whole lot different in terms of approach and content than public schools. So first off, uh, disclaimer, I'm, I'm against the whole notion of coerced state-provided education as being fundamentally flawed and unfixable. And by the way, based on what I know of Ray, I, I think he would agree with that. I, I, I understand the spirit of the question is more kind of hypothetical, you know, like if you were going to be designing a history program for youngsters, how would you go about it, right? So I wouldn't actually want to force it on everybody, but if somebody were to ask me to do so. I I would say um, these are some of my thoughts anyway. First off, I do believe that there is age appropriateness for certain information. And by the way, this podcast is not intended for children. Now, it's your call if you listen to it and get a sense of what it's about and how I communicate it. If you decide you want to share it with your children, you're their, you're their parent, it's on you. But that's I'm not this is not intended as a podcast primarily or even largely for children because we focus on a lot of things that are kind of dark. It is after all the dangerous history podcast. Now I think there's aspects of the things we cover here that can certainly be shared with young children, but not just because I drop the occasional four letter word for emphasis. And by the way, uh, to anybody who has emailed or is thinking of emailing me about, Oh, stop, dropping the occasional F-bomb or whatever, you're wasting your time, okay? I, I understand everybody's got their different opinion on different words and whatever, but one of the reasons I started this show was not only to communicate the content I wanted to communicate, but to do it in as free of a manner as I possibly could without self-censorship. So if I think something's bullshit, I'm going to call it bullshit. I'm not going to call it balderdash or malarkey. If I think something is fucked up, I'm going to say it's fucked up. You know, I'm just being honest. I don't think I swear very much, but I think when I do, I typically have a reason for it. I'm really making an emphatic point or something like that. But aside from the occasional 
F-bomb or shit or whatever. I also don't think this is a podcast that's appropriate for children, especially like preteen children, because I think there's certain things that when you share them with a child who's too young, it is kind of psychologically, potentially at least, traumatic for them in some fashion. So, you know, the darkest stuff that governments do, I would not share with children. I don't share with my own children. I have two young children. Um, I tell them some real history. I don't lie to them. I don't whitewash it and tell them that, you know, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and all these guys are great and that government's your friend here to help. I don't do any of that. But at the same time, I don't tell them at this point. I'm, I will, you know, in later years, maybe when they start to be in their teens, I don't tell them all the horrible things. I, I don't tell my children about the MK Ultra experiments or the plutonium files experiments or some of these other things I've covered on here some of the most horrific aspects of what governments do and have done. I'm not going to really get into detail about something like, for example, the Holocaust or the, the horrors of Mao Zedong's regime or something like that until my children are older. So number one disclaimer I would say is that not all history and not all dangerous history in particular is suitable for sharing with very young children out of concern with their psychology. And all I can say is any of you who grew up while the Cold War was still going um, many of you probably had some mental scars if you were told at too young of an age about the potential for global nuclear war. Lots of people who were children during the Cold War can tell you that if they were too young the first time they were really told about nuclear war and what it would really do, that it did cause them sleepless nights and cause them distress and things like this. And I'm sorry, my personal opinion is that children should be shielded from this type of stuff. It doesn't mean you lie to them. It just means there are certain things that you don't share with them until later when they're older and more mature and can handle it. You know, you, you don't have to tell a six-year-old the details of the government torturing people to death. You can just, you know, give some sort of a simplified version that makes the point but doesn't contain all the gory details. So the first thing I would say is, is I would have... I would take into account maturity and um, what they're able to handle. I would take that very seriously. I do think it's psychologically potentially damaging to share really dark things, even if they're true, with children who are too young to really grasp them. Again, I'm not advocating lying. I'm advocating saving certain things for appropriate ages. But as to specifically how to approach this, um, one thing I would say is you're never going to get good results as long as there is standardized, centralized, government-run education. That's, that's just wishful thinking of the worst kind. And a big part of it is so many of the teachers are bound to be not truly experts in history. They're just repeating what they were told by a textbook and by their teacher's edition and what have you. And it's simply because to have enough history teachers for all of the public schools in this entire country, you can't have the standards all that high. And the same is true of other topics as well. I'm just speaking about history because it's my bag. So I wouldn't want someone teaching it who wasn't really an expert, but you want someone who's also an expert but is able to communicate things in an age-appropriate level. Now, I'm most used to teaching college-age students, so that's what I'm most comfortable with. Uh, the other day, I was telling some history to my own children who are much younger than college age, and I really had to think hard about not only the, the stuff I would kind of leave out as not quite age-appropriate, but also how to 
express certain things, how to actually explain things. Because even if you have children who are highly intelligent and my kids, according to their IQ tests and everything are not, not to brag, just stating facts. But even if you have children who are highly intelligent for their age, there still is going to be a world of difference between how you explain something to a 19 year old and how you explain something to a nine year old. So that's another thing is I would say it, it is important to keep in, in mind, not just the content level and whether it's, you know, too dark or, or too, too um, graphic for the age, but also exactly how you say things. I would actually, once high quality experts who are also experts, not just in content, but in how to explain it to the particular age group they're dealing with, I would say once they are hired and once, you know, they've one way or another through past work experience or what have you, or through a little bit of a a trial period, once they've demonstrated that they're good at what they do, I would say they need to be turned loose as much as humanly possible. I think as long as someone is really qualified and is really trying to do the job of teaching, they should be given the maximum amount of elbow room, the maximum amount of leeway, so that they can be creative. Think about it. Think about all the teachers you had, K through 12 and probably even college, the ones who were the most creative in exactly what they covered and how they covered it and how they approached it and how they discussed things in class. The ones who were the most creative, who, by the way, in many cases, were probably breaking some rules to do so. The ones who were the most creative were always the most interesting and were always the classes you looked forward to the most. And that's because you're allowing them to be a craftsman. A truly good teacher is a craftsperson. They are an artisan in a way. There is a certain amount of things that can't be expressed and can't be taught as far as skill and ability with teaching. So I would say if you were running some sort of like a private school, I would say very important to hire good people and then turn them loose. And as long as they're fulfilling the basic requirement of teaching the particular subject, don't ride their ass on how they're doing it. And so much of this emphasis on standardized tests and standardized centrally dictated curriculum is taking all of the creativity and all of the discretion away from the teacher. And it should be no wonder that the teachers turn into you know, drones who are just kind of going through the motions. Why, why should they put their heart and soul into it when that's literally going against the rules in a lot of cases, when they're just handed by fiat, a basic curriculum, and here's how you cover this. Here's when you cover that. Here's how you're going to, you know, grade this and do that. And everything is centrally dictated. Can you really, everyone always wants to blame the teachers, but can you really blame them for not putting their heart and soul into something where they have, have no creative freedom. I think that a lot of public school teachers, not all of them for sure, but a lot of them potentially could and would be much better teachers if they simply had the authorities get off their ass. And again, ultimately, I'm an anarchist, so I'm not in favor of fixing the public school systems. I don't think they're ultimately salvageable. But I'm saying any school is going to provide better teaching if you hire good people, hire people who really know what they're doing and how to teach it, and then cut them loose and really let them be creative and have fun. And the students will learn without even realizing they're learning. They'll learn in a way that just is almost feels like they're having entertainment. Now, a few specifics I would say beyond that is I would say no textbook. 
Textbooks are, in my opinion, always awful. Now, some are more awful than others for sure, but for a variety of reasons I won't get into here because of time, I do not like textbooks. Instead, I would say you're better off using a reliance on real books, meaning non-textbook books, combined with primary sources. And this really started to hit me in my, I guess, junior, senior year as an undergrad and also in graduate school, where there were almost no more textbooks. Once you got beyond like the sophomore level, there were rarely did you really have a textbook textbook. Mostly what you did was you got a pile of real books written by real experts in the field. And then, you know, you might read as many as a dozen books over the course of the semester and then increasingly supplemented with primary source material, um, legitimate scholarly journal articles, that type of thing. So I would say at a fairly young age, you can dispense with the textbook because textbooks, they're written by committee. They're typically written to pass muster with state schools that are pushing their own agenda of one type or another of left or of right, depending on where you are. They're written by committees. They're written above all else to not offend anybody. And truth and consistency and even interesting narrative is sacrificed quite willingly to those altars, to those goals. And I think part of it is that to a degree, when you have a textbook, you have a book that is being sold in mass quantities to captive audiences. And so the book doesn't have to really make the students happy. The book, all it has to do is make some committee somewhere that picked it happy. So I don't like textbooks. I would say some combination of real books, plus articles, plus primary sources would be the reading material I would go with. And I would also supplement it with lots of other things. I would supplement it with visual aids, possibly with videos, depending on, you know, video clips, depending on what it is you're covering and what's out there on the topic. You have to be careful there, of course. I would expect the teacher to be able to lecture on the basic narrative of the overall picture of events, but also to be willing and able to engage in deep analytical discussions with the students. And again, calibrating this to the age level and intelligence level of the children. There are some kids who can probably read and understand the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers at age 14. If I remember right, I think I could. But there are others for whom that would be a struggle, and so you would have to adjust it to the individual. And this is why large standard schools, whether public or private, always have some some compromises to make and are going to have some flaws. If you're talking just one individual child or a very small group of children, you can do a much better job, much easier, and get it right of tailoring the difficulty level and the content specifically to their interests and abilities. So I think that's key. Get away from textbooks, emphasize a combination of real books, real articles, and primary sources. And, and make sure these are all legit, too, because obviously there's a lot of bullcrap out there that isn't textbooks, but is still bullcrap. Now, beyond that, I would say it would be important to me to de-emphasize content in terms of just basic facts. Now, you would have to cover basic facts, and you would want to make sure that the students have a general grasp of like when the civil war was and what it was and what was happening, for example, but to make the emphasis more on critical thinking and critical analysis 
and really thinking deeply about history and about questions like what is true and what is false and the nature of power and so on. And these are questions that are rarely, if ever, brought up in most conventional history classes. But to me, in my experience teaching, students are far more interested in digging into those types of questions than they are in mastering names and dates and treaties and battles and that sort of thing. Again, not not that you can ever entirely escape that in a history class, nor should you. But what's more important if a student remembers what year the Norman Conquest of England happened, or if a student really has a deep understanding of what the Norman Conquest of England was and what it can teach us about people and about the world. So the way I always say it is the history classes that I teach, the college history classes I teach, to me, it's far more important that a student gets a deeper understanding of what history really is, what facts and and true versus false really are, how to really figure out what's right and what's wrong, how to analyze things from many points of view, how to really think critically. It's something everyone talks about, critical thinking, but very few people really mean it when they say it. And to me, I'd rather have a student get a lot of that type of stuff out of one of my classes and be maybe a little fuzzy on some of the names and dates of some things than to be just an absolute trivial pursuit or jeopardy history question machine, but not really have any deep understanding. There's a lot of people out there who are, you know, self-described history buffs or whatever, who are trivia machines. They can kick my ass all day long at just rattling off little facts and rattling off names and dates and battles and things like this. And they might be able to, to kick my ass in a trivia history game on that. But what I think that I do that not all those types of people do is I I am willing and able to sit through and really think around an historical problem or question and try and understand it deeply and come to my own conclusions on what it really means and what's really true, regardless of whatever society and institutions around me are telling me to do. And I think if we want to build people who want to live free, it's more important that they master skills of thinking for themselves and critically analyzing things and questioning things and coming to their own conclusions. That's far more important to building human beings who value freedom and want to live free than is someone mastering a bunch of series of battles and treaties and so on. I would place the emphasis very much on how to think rather than what to think. I try very hard with my own children to not just shove my conclusions on them, but instead to, through kind of the Socratic method and also through kind of walking them through my own thought processes on things, again, without any sort of pressure to make them share my conclusions, but to just sort of model for them how to think critically about an issue or a question or a subject or what have you. So I would say very important not to give the children conclusions, not to try and make them agree with you on anything as much as just to do as much as you can to facilitate them learning how to think for themselves. And if they occasionally come to different conclusions than you, that's fine. That can provide fodder for really great conversations wherein both parties learn a lot. Just a few more things I'd like to add on this subject. One is I really want to emphasize that I really like the Montessori idea, which is also in some other 
unconventional outside of the mainstream establishment types of of approaches to schooling. I like the Montessori idea of giving the student a lot of leeway to choose specifically what they want to look into in detail. And I think that is really great with history. I think part of why history is often so difficult in a, in a typical class setting for people to get into is that they're kind of told, hey, you, you have to study these parts of history and they're not given much leeway to really decide what they want to explore and pursue for themselves. And I think when they're given a lot more leeway to decide exactly what to look into, that there's motivation there. There's motivation to do something when you're choosing what it is you're doing. And to be fair, again, it's not entirely the fault of the teachers as much as it is the situation in most schools, because when you have 25, 30 or more students in one classroom, it's just flat out impossible to allow them all to do that sort of thing when you only have one teacher. Now, in my experience in the many classes I've taught and for the approach that I'm talking about here, I think that the sweet spot of students is 10 to 15. And the sweet spot is probably somewhere right around a dozen or a baker's dozen. Uh, to me, to approach history in the way that I'm talking about here with a lot of discussion, and you know, you could have students doing their own individual projects, but then sharing what they're doing with the class, it is extremely difficult to impossible to do when you have a class of 25, 30 or more students. And when you keep in mind that most, you know, high school and college instructors have five, six, seven, eight classes per semester, and if each of those classes is pushing 30 or more students apiece, it's flat out impossible, no matter how much the instructor wants to, for him or her to do that much individualization. On the other hand, I think that having fewer than about 10 students in a class makes it difficult to have as much discussion and dynamics that way. So it's not to say that you can't teach smaller groups of children or even individual children if you're homeschooling. It's just that the approach that you would take has to be different than the approach you would take with 10 or 15. One specific thing I'll mention that is kind of a growing trend in college education circles and in, I think, even in some of the more advanced thinking K through 12 schooling is a concept called a flipped classroom. And I think this has great potential. I've incorporated it to an extent in a lot of my classes and a flipped classroom really quick. If you don't know what that is, is where the students are actually covering the basic content of a subject outside of classroom. If we were talking in terms of the trivium, if you're familiar with the trivium, this would be just the grammar, the basic facts of things. They're covering that on their own time outside of class, not just in the form of reading, but also in the form, thanks to technology, of things like podcasts, pencasts, videos, that type of thing. So that's where they're getting the basic information on the topic. And then in when they come into the actual class for a class meeting is when you, rather than covering the basic grammar, so to speak, the basic factual information in the classroom, it is now the student has already done that on their own through using those sorts of materials I mentioned. And of course, you take questions, if any of them has questions on what they've listened to or watched or read, of course, you get into that. But the real focus is on going 
deeper into the topic. And so the classroom time is less about here's a name, here's a fact, here's a key term, that sort of thing. That's handled outside the classroom through a combination of books and technology. And then in the classroom, it's more about, hey, let's have a discussion. Let's explore these ideas further. Let's, you know, maybe use what we learned over here to try to attack and understand an historical problem or question over there. So anyway, those are just some of my thoughts on how to approach this. If one were looking at how to set up a curriculum or something like that. So great question, Ray. Hope you and and the listeners found my answer um, at least, you know, interesting and were and thought provoking, I guess. Our last email for this show comes to us from Max. Max writes the following. I just got done with your series of podcasts about the American Revolution. Thank you so much for putting that together. It shed a lot of light on a cornerstone of our nation's history that mostly gets distilled to just a few names and a couple of documents while glossing over eight plus years of war. I found your commentary on George Washington of particular interest as I was only familiar with the routine narrative about his impact and not all of the extra baggage that has been purposefully glossed over for a variety of reasons. As the news came out this week that Donald Trump was running for president, side note that this is an email from you know several weeks back, I couldn't help but see many parallels between the two men. I find this ironic considering many who would call George Washington the father of our country and one of the greatest presidents would also mock or deride someone like Trump being president. However, when you consider both men are, were ruthless real estate moguls and among the richest men in the country during their time, plus being vindictive, vain, overly concerned with their hair and appearance, loud, obnoxious, prone to bouts of anger and dressing down subordinates, great marketers with a whole machine of propaganda and legend behind them that forces them into popular culture, and buildings named after them, I couldn't help but think they are basically the same person. Trump would also likely be about as good a commander-in-chief as Washington, i.e. not good at all. What say you, Prof. CJ? Love the show. Thanks for all you do. Well, uh, this email from Max, I must say, is a great email, something I would have never, it never even crossed my mind to compare the two men. And at first, when he started to say he was going to compare Donald Trump to George Washington, I was thinking, what? But when I read what he had to say, I actually realized, yeah, actually, he's right. There's a lot of points there. When I first read this email, I literally started LOLing. Of course, as is so often the case when something is hilarious, it's hilarious, at least in part, because it reveals a truth, typically a truth that is unseen or uncomfortable or, you know, either deliberately or by accident, we wouldn't typically see. So much of the best stand-up comedy is these sorts of truths, right? And just putting them in a way that gets a laugh instead of, you know, knocking people off guard in a hostile way. And um, I think this email from Max is very much that. It's, it's funny, but it's funny because it's true few things I'll say in passing that are maybe a tiny bit different between the two men. I would say that Washington was at least somewhat more concerned with not being perceived by the public as an asshole. He was happy actually being an asshole to anyone who was a rival or who was an obstacle to things he was trying to do in politics or in real estate. But Washington was very much concerned with his public image that it be this benevolent image. Whereas Trump, on the other hand, and, and I'm not a huge follower of, of him in the media or in pop culture or whatever, 
But from what I understand, Trump seems almost to relish having a widespread public reputation as being kind of an asshole. So that's sort of a difference. I think they're both assholes, but I think Trump is more just happy to be one and be known as one and so on. Also, another maybe difference, I don't know enough about the sources of Trump's wealth other than that he, I know he was born into an already wealthy real estate family to begin with. And that's obviously a similarity in a lot of ways to George Washington. But I don't know the, the growth of his wealth from that starting point. I don't know enough about exactly the details of all of his deals and transactions and so on to comment intelligently about the degree to which Trump's net wealth is or is not due to the state and to getting state favors and state privilege and so on. Whereas it was so much in the case of George Washington using the state to, you know, pad his real estate portfolio. But other than those two little caveats I mentioned, I have to say, Max, I, after giving it some thought, agree with you. This is a great point that puts an interesting perspective on George Washington for sure. Could he, would he get elected president today? And uh, is that necessarily a bad thing? You know, a lot of George Washington worshipers and defenders would probably say, oh, it shows how much we've deteriorated that a great man like Washington can't get elected today. I'm not so sure it's such a bad thing because I'm not so sure. He, he may have been a great man, but as I think it was Lord Acton who said, great men are almost always bad men. And by the way, when I do my episode in sometime in the coming weeks or so on Sargon of Akkad, the uh, first real kind of emperor in world history, or at least a lot of people consider him that. He's known as Sargon the Great, right? And all of these historical figures who are known as the Great, Sargon the Great, Alexander the Great, Catherine the Great, Peter the Great, one thing they all have in common is they're all really kind of psychotic mass murderers. So... Whenever someone talks about, you know, so-and-so is a great president, I always wonder, what, what do they mean by that? One last thing I want to share with you is some of my thoughts regarding the whole hoopla about the Confederate flag. And this is, I'm going to read something that I posted on Facebook that got a lot of attention. And I also posted kind of an abbreviated version of this in Twitter over the course of several connected tweets. But this is what I wrote on Facebook, got a lot of attention and a lot of likes and, and really no serious, you know, negative comments. I wrote this about the Confederate flag, quote myself, as an anarchist, I'm definitely not a fan of the Confederate government or any of their flags, but it should be noted that the so-called Confederate flag, technically the battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia, only flew over a slaveholding republic, the CSA, for about three and a half years. From its adoption by Lee's army in November 1861 till Lee's surrender in April 1865. Whereas the Stars and Stripes flew over a slaveholding republic, the United States, for about 88 and a half years from its adoption, the flag's adoption, in June 1777 until the 13th Amendment ended slavery finally throughout the United States in December 1865. I teach history not math, but I'm pretty sure that 88.5 is greater than 3.5. So as long as we're ditching flags historically associated with slavery, dot, dot, dot. End quote from my Facebook posting. I have to say the only flag I have much affection for 
and it's largely just sort of, you know, irrational sentiment and amusement. Other than the old Jolly Roger, which I do have a soft spot for, the only other flag I kind of have some affection for is the Conk Republic flag. And this is a flag that flew over Key West in a, in a half-hearted satirical secession that they did in, I think it was the early 80s. I'll put the flag, the Conquer Public flag, as the picture for this episode in the show notes at profcj.org, and I'll also throw in a link to a site that tells the story of the Conquer Republic and its flag, if you're unfamiliar with it, if you're curious. But anyway, again, I'm no fan of the Confederate government and what they did and what they stood for during their their brief existence. But again, this whole double standard of this flag's evil because it's associated with, you know, three years and change of slavery and just totally oblivious to old glory having flown over a slaveholding republic for almost 90 years. It, it's kind of silly and shows that people are not really rational and historical when they're thinking these things. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode and found my responses to these emails and, of course, the emails themselves as well to be uh, interesting, thought-provoking. It's my first time doing this, so we'll have to see how it goes over, if people like it, if you want more of this sort of thing, if you think it if it didn't uh, tickle your fancy or whatever, maybe I'll do more of it. I'll probably do more of it unless I get overwhelmingly negative responses to it. So, as always, feel free to leave comments that are relevant to this episode in the show notes for this episode at my website, profcj.org. You can also email me any questions, comments about anything, not just specific to any particular episode. My email address is profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with me and follow the show on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to the show in a variety of ways. There's a whole page of ways to subscribe to the show on my website, and that includes such popular podcast venues as iTunes and Stitcher. I'm on lrn.fm as well. I'm part of their uh, podcast loop, I guess it's called. Remember, there are multiple ways you can help out the show. One is to spread the word about the show. Another is to leave a rating or a review in venues like iTunes and Stitcher. You can also help me out financially. I sure do appreciate it. I can always use it. You can go to profcj.org slash donate. You can donate there via PayPal or via Bitcoin. Um, also, again, coming soon, once I finish getting everything set up and ready to go for it, there will be a Patreon way where you can sign up for a set amount you know, a buck, three bucks, five bucks, whatever per episode, whatever you want. That'll be another option as well. With PayPal, you can sign up for one-time donation or you can sign up for a recurring monthly donation, whichever you prefer. I'm happy to get either. You can also help out the show financially, of course, by purchasing items from Amazon.com by first going through those affiliate links found in various places throughout my website. Huge thank you to everyone who's donated or bought from my Amazon links recently. I very much appreciate it. Thanks also to everybody who's been out there spreading the good word of the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.